And then we are going to be in Romans 13 tonight. And boy, look at that title, The Issue of Authority. I know everybody in here loves authority and always responds perfectly to authority. But we're going to teach us, you can take the CD to somebody, okay? That's a joke. Anybody in here had a problem with authority today? Yeah, some of you didn't. That's honest. Well, you know, it's a funny thing about authority. It comes from God. We're going to look at that. How many of you are ready to go through Romans 13 tonight? All right. Let's look at it. Last time we saw uh, that in light of God's incredible mercies towards us, it's only reasonable to offer to Him our bodies as a living sacrifice. Amen? Amen. Now I'm going to read that far and we're going to pray. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we come to Romans in humility, Lord. We ask you to open the word of God to us. Teach us, Lord. Renew our minds. Help us to see the world, see life, and see ourselves through the lens of your word. Lord, we need your word engrafted into our souls. It'll save our minds and our wills and our emotions. We ask you speak to us. Now, will you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You can be seated. God bless you. And let's look at this now. Romans. Last time, our bodies are living sacrifices. It's only then that we're enabled to live out the truths of chapter 6 through 8. That's why it's important to get the whole word. Whole word, not just a few pet verses, but the whole word. Because if you read Romans 6 through 8 and never read 12, you would not really know the gateway into how to live out 6 through 8. Romans 12 tells us how. You've got to commit your body to the Lord, a living sacrifice. Now, this time we're going to discuss the divinely sanctioned role of government. You know, there's so much going on in government these days, I almost hate even saying the word. Government. Blech. It's like gravel in my mouth. Because it's become very corrupt, has it not? But now, let's look at what God intended with government. Uh, and what our responsibility is to those who are in power. Okay? Verse 1, here's what he says, Romans 13, 1. Everyone must do what, everybody? Submit himself to what? The governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now I know what some of you are already thinking when I read that, and I know because I thought it too. Well, if they're established by God... What about the fact that they can become so corrupt? Well, their corruption is not from God, but the position, the authority is from God. So we're going to distinguish between the two as we go through this. Now, let's go on. Human government derives its authority from God. Paul shows that governments are appointed by God. Human government was inaugurated. When did it begin? Well, it began after the flood when he placed into Noah's hand the sword of the magistrate, meaning the sword of capital punishment. Let's look at what happened. God said to Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. There you go. Now that's the first time God told a man that if someone sheds another person's blood, you have my authority to shed their blood. That was the beginning 
of God-delegated governmental authority. Right there. Now those words launched man on the road to self-government. But like everything else entrusted to man, human government soon failed. It became corrupt. Why? Because man is fallen. And he has a fallen nature. So there's no way that a man is going to execute God's will perfectly. The story of the Tower of Babel shows how man used his newfound authority to plan organized rebellion against the very throne of God itself. Up to this time, rebellion against God had been an individual matter. When, for instance, uh, Cain killed Abel, that was individual. That was something Cain did to his brother. But when the Tower of Babel was attempted, that was a coalition of people who decided to rebel against God together. And God had to shut it down because their rebellion became federal, not individual. And so now in our day, we've got whole nations that are in rebellion against God. I think of the Soviet Union, uh, any of the communist nations who say you can't believe in God. There is a, an entire nation, a coalition of people forming an entire nation that are in rebellion against God. And God's going to bring them into judgment. I personally believe America is, is greatly in rebellion against God right now. And God's going to bring either revival or, uh, I believe, judgment. Now, despite the abuses of governmental power, human government is still a divine institution. It is still of God. Okay? The powers that be, Paul says, are ordained of God. I'm going to forewarn you a little bit. We're going to look at a couple of things that are, that are tough on the mind tonight. It, it's tough to come to grips with it or to, to wrap your mind around a couple of the principles, but we need to. We need to get this. Now watch this. When he says the powers that be are ordained of God, the word powers comes from a Greek word meaning delegated authorities. That means I delegate to somebody else to go and stand in my stead, to go represent me. That's a delegated authority. And the word ordained means appointed. Evil men may be elected to power, or they may seize power, as the Nazis did. They may have no thought of God at all, but the very fact that God permits them to seize the reins of government means he's got a purpose to fulfill, even through their misrule. Now, this is sovereignty. This is the concept of sovereignty. And what it means is you can look at evil, wicked men like Hitler, wicked to the core, the Nazi party, steeped in the occult, obeying voices that told them to do what they did, coming against God's very own people. Yet in in and through the lens of sovereignty, God allowed it. Now, we're not going to understand until we get to the other side fully why God allows some of the things that he did. But sovereignty says, even though it doesn't look like it, God is in charge. That's what sovereignty says. And you've got to trust that. Now, how many of you can remember a time in your life where it looked like Everything was going wrong, and there was all kinds of, of mess and pain and trouble and, 
And you didn't understand what was happening. You wondered where God was. And yet now, a few years down the road, you can look back and say, now I see. He had it. He was in charge. He got me through it. Even though the enemy was really coming against me, overall, God ruled and worked it together for the good. Can you, can you say that? Right, now you pull back and look at the history of the world. And even though the history of the world is one war after another, one tyrannical government after another, all kinds of pain and abuse and wrong and evil, yet God declares in his word, I'm still in charge. And watch this. It's a saying well worth considering that people get the kind of government they deserve. See, when God wants to speak to a people, a lot of times he does it through a government. Amen? Now, governments may be weak or they may be strong, just or oppressive, benevolent or cruel, wise or foolish. But in each case, God has his way and moves his own plans forward. History is ultimately his story. Okay? Now, democracies and dictatorships alike are under his control. Nations come and go. Kingdoms rise and fall. Empires wax and wane. But behind them all is God's overruling in the affairs of men. It's true. Our God is in charge. Wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said it's going to happen. Famines and pestilences. He said they're coming. Depressions and disasters. He said you can mark it down. It's going to take place, especially as the end of time draws near. All of these things are woven into the fabric of history, but the tapestry he is weaving is perfect. And all the pressures of satanic force and human sin are gloriously overruled by a God who is both omnipotent and omniscient. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe in God. Because if God is God, that has to be true. Satan's not in charge. Satan is a dog on a leash. He's a dog on a leash. He can't go any further than what the sovereignty of God allows him to go. People say, well, why is it so terrible? Why so much bloodshed? If God's really there, why all the pain and rape and pillage and murder and bloodshed? And here's what I say to them. If God weren't in control, how much worse would it be? How much worse would it be if he weren't restraining it? The restraint of God is all over this world right now. If he lifted his hand for a microsecond, we would be in Armageddon. One of the great lessons of the book of Daniel, let me give you an example, is that God keeps a firm hand on history. Look what it says in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. This is when Nebuchadnezzar was coming out of his insanity. One day he said, look at this great kingdom I have built. And God said, that's it. Since you think you built it, you're losing your mind. You're going to become like a beast of the field. You're going to grow fingernails like bird claws. Your hair is going to grow wild until you realize that I have done this and not you. And when he, Nebuchadnezzar, been, ne, uh, bleh, let me try that name again. When old Neb began to come out of it, look what he says. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. And what was restored to him? His sanity. And then I praised the Most High. 
I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And look what he says about God. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth, how many of the peoples? Are regarded as nothing. He does, read this with me, he does as he pleases. Whoa, that's God. He does what he wants to do. And look what it goes on. Where does he do it? With the powers of heaven. And he does as he pleases with the people of the earth. No dictator is really in charge. No tyrant is really in charge. Hitler was never really in charge. There's not a man or a woman on earth really and truly in charge. They are being allowed. No one, look what it says, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or what are you doing? Uh uh. Because you're dealing with the almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign God. Now, next, Paul goes on to show that governments are approved by God. Look at this. Verse 2 Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Even though government is imperfect. When you are driving down the highway and you see those cherries come on behind you and those lights start shining, you cannot say to yourself, because he doesn't go to church on Sundays, I'm not pulling over. It doesn't matter what he does, does it? Because he's not pulling you over in his name, is he? He's pulling you over in the name of the state, in the name of the government, and ultimately in the name of God. We don't like to hear that, do we? But he says, if you resist the authority, you're going to bring judgment on yourself. Just go ahead and keep on driving and see if judgment doesn't fall. Because of the fallen nature of man, society without government is absolutely impossible. This is why we need it. Anarchy and pandemonium would result. If we lifted government, all government, national and state and local, for one week, you would be holed up in your house with every gun you own, with all the doors and windows locked and barred, and you would be fighting for your life. The only thing that restrains the ultimate evil of man is God-ordained government, national, state, local. Okay? The authority of the state is grounded in the will of God. To resist rulers is to resist what God has appointed and to incur judgment. Now here's the exception. The exception to this principle would be that that time when the state requires an action that runs directly against the written word of God or the Christian conscience that is grounded in his revealed will. There comes a time when conscientiously and in obedience to God, you've got to say, can't do it. Let me show you some examples. For instance, when the children of Israel languished in Egyptian slavery, remember that? 400 years. They were under slavery. The Hebrew midwives were ordered by Pharaoh to kill every male child. It was an Old Testament infanticide edict. Kill every male child. Exodus 1, 15 to 17 and verse 21 says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. 
Wow, what a command. And here's those midwives. And they knew God. They knew of God. Their God was Jehovah. Now watch this. What happened? What did they do? The midwives, however, what did they do? Read it with me. Feared God. And they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And they even lied. They said, man, these, these Hebrew women give birth fast. By the time we get there, it's a done deal. And the boy's gone. And they lied. Don't ask me to go there ethically. I don't know. But they lied. Don't get any ideas, you. I'm not saying there's times you ought to lie. I do think there's times you ought to shut up. Now watch this. Because they feared God, they, 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 they let the boys live. And what did God do for them when they feared God and let those boys live? He gave them families of their own. God blessed them. And what, why did they refuse to do what Pharaoh commanded them to do? Because it was against God and it was against their conscience. It was against everything moral and ethical and right. And they said, can't do it. And God said, I'm going to bless you with families of your own. Because they refused to obey this wicked command, Moses, their future deliverer, was born. Think about that. When I was studying this and I typed that out and thought about that from this angle for the very first time, it went all over me. Because they refused to obey an evil command, they secured their future deliverance. Think about that. If they had obeyed the midwives... They'd have sat in Egyptian slavery ad infinite forever, in perpetuity. But they said no, and their future deliverer was born. Wow. Now, likewise, in the book of Acts, the disciples were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus, because bad things happen when you preach in the name of Jesus, right? I mean, that's when the devils come out. And uh, this was a direct violation of Christ's command to them. Go and preach in my name. So what did they say? Acts 5, 28, 29 says, We give you strict orders. Don't you preach in the name of Jesus. Preach anything you want, but don't preach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and the other apostles replied, Say it with me. We must obey God rather than men. So when a choice must be made to obey God by disobeying men or disobey God in order to obey men, the answer is, we must obey God rather than men. If somebody came in here, an authority of the state, and said, Jeff Wickwire, you can't preach the Bible anymore, I'd have to disobey and go to jail or whatever. If somebody came to your house next week and said, renounce the name of Jesus, and they were the authorities of the state, you would have to say, we must obey God rather than men. Okay? But for the most part, government is God's way of maintaining the public good and directing the affairs of the state. Now, verses 3 through 5, let's read it. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant. Whoa! This is talking about the police. This is talking about authority figures. He is God's servant. Now, is he perfect? No. Is he executing 
government that has been ordained by God, yes. That is, the restraint of evil is of God. But if you do wrong, you ought to be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. And in our day, the magnum or the glock. He doesn't carry it for nothing. Okay? Uh, well, I went way ahead. There we go. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. If they're not asking you to go against the Word of God, if they're just executing the law and maintaining law and order and restraining evil, then for conscience' sake you obey. Now I'm going to go where angels fear to tread. Here I go. If I'm in this country illegally, I'm serious, if it was me, and I'm in this country illegally, from Mexico or Canada or wherever, wherever, if I'm here illegally and I'm a Christian, I have a problem that I'm here illegally. Where do I have the problem? In my conscience. There's so much hubbub about the illegal immigration issue. There shouldn't be. There doesn't need to be. If I really fear God, and if I'm a believer, that verse right there tells me, obey the laws of man for conscience sake. So what I would do, I'd go back and come in right. It's not that we're anti-immigration in America. We're anti-illegal immigration. Okay? Just like anything else that is illegal. So he says, for conscience sake, you ought to do it. That's free. I don't know what's going to happen when that goes over the radio. But I really don't know what the controversy is about. Because this is the most immigrant-friendly country on earth. It's just, please come in right. Don't come in the back door. Don't come in wrong. And we'll bless you, love you, embrace you, and we still do anyway, but we can't bless or condone or sanction an illegal act of any kind for conscience sake. It's just that simple. But we ought to love everybody. I do love everybody. I love the thief, but I'm not going to say, hey, I love you so much, go on and steal. I mean, it's, it's really kind of crazy. We're, we're, we're drowning in political correctness. We can't see the forest for the trees. Now, let me just move on. When functioning as God intended, the military, the police force, and other law enforcement agencies are God's servants in restraining evil. Interestingly, the word servants, when it calls them his servants, comes from the very word we translate into liturgy the word liturgy. And I'm having a hard time changing this now. There we go. It is used in Hebrews 1.14 to describe the duties of the angels. So God is telling us that law enforcement discharge a God-ordained duty. Amen. Now, not all rulers, admittedly, serve God in their private lives. But regardless of whether they do or not, they discharge functions which are God-ordained. Y'all with me on that one? Okay? They may be terrible at home, terrible with their spouses. They may be terrible people. But when they are functioning in the office, you've got to respect the power God has invested in them. I noticed in the game. Yes, I did watch that cowboy game. 
I watched that terrible cowboy game. First game out of the chute. I watched it. I had to get up several times and walk around and pray. And then I had to come back and watch it because mistake after mistake. But here's what I noticed. You can have a little bitty fella in a black and white striped shirt stand in the middle of that field. And here comes these big honking brutes. But when that little bitty guy blows his whistle in front of this big brute, the big brute stops. And you go, what stopped him? Well, not the strength of the little guy in the black and the white shirt, but his authority. Because behind him stands the National Football League. And if the big brute flattened him, behind him would stand the police as well. So that's the power of authority. That's why authority, authority is so powerful. Now, as to government, Paul is saying this. Government is responsible for national safety. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. This means they must protect the community. They are to resist criminal elements in the community. Hence, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You remember when you were in sin, if you were messing around in drugs or something, every time somebody came up behind you at night, you're looking in the rearview mirror, wondering if it's somebody's going to pull you over because you're doing wrong, you're afraid of everything that moves. You know, the Bible says the wicked flees when nobody's even chasing them. <laughs> but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The only people who ought to live in fear of law enforcement are lawbreakers. The Bible warns the last days are going to be marked by increasing lawlessness. Jesus said that in the last days, iniquity, which is lawlessness, is going to abound. Now, I'm going to go through four words for lawlessness, and I want you to tell me if you see these in our culture right now, okay? Four important words in the Greek New Testament which are used to describe outbursts of lawlessness. A brief scan of them is going to help us understand why it's so crucial that we have government. So here's the first word. It's komos. That's the Greek word, komos. And it's used to describe, quote, a troop of intoxicated revelers who at the close of an orgy with garlands on their heads and torches in their hands with shouts and songs wander through the streets with insult and wanton outrage for everyone they meet. Can anybody say gay parade? San Francisco? Can anybody say rock concerts some of them anyway have you seen anything like this in our culture do you see it more and more all the time reveling drunkenness mocking the righteous flaunting their sin the second word for lawlessness is ekthra which is translated hatred or enmity in the ancient world there were three kinds of enmity Three kinds of ekthra. Watch this. There was enmity between class and class. The haves and the have-nots. In other words, there was class envy. Any of that going around today? There was enmity between the Greeks and the barbarians. That is, enmity between the races. Any of that going around today? Enmity between the races? Racism? Charges of racism? And there was enmity between man and man. These enmities are flourishing today in the so-called enlightened 
21st century. Now, the third word for lawlessness in the New Testament is asotia, meaning abandon, abandon. That's lawlessness. In Luke 15, when Jesus is describing the prodigal son, who we are told wasted his substance with riotous or abandoned living. Abandoned, this word, this word asotia means you throw your morals and your ethics to the wind. And you say, I'm no longer going to live under any kind of moral restraint. You go into abandoned living. He simply, the prodigal that is, threw everything away. He had no restraint and no regard for decency and no thought for the future. You see that today? In our culture? I mean, look at it. Look at it. Look what's going on in the schools. Look at what's going on in our culture right now. Do you see our culture throwing the word to the wind and walking with abandon off the cliff? Now, the fourth word is anomia, meaning lawless or having contempt for the law. It's this word that is closest to the theme of Romans 13. When you've got people in a culture who just have contempt, hatred, despise law. They hate it. It's this word Jesus uses in Matthew 24, 12 when he describes the increasing lawlessness of the last days. They're going to have contempt for the law. I was watching a deal yesterday on, I think it was the History Channel, something like that, showed a, a, a riot that had just happened in our world. It showed police lined up with their shields in a long line with helmets on, all the riot gear, and it showed this crowd just attacking them, beating down the shields, striking them in the hat, grabbing their shields from them and striking them with their own shields. No fear, no respect, no nothing for the law. Contempt. Let me tell you what the righteous will show. They'll show respect for the law. You show me somebody redeemed, and I'll show you somebody that has a respect for what God has ordained. It's just that simple. Now, government and law enforcement are there to restrain these different manifestations of lawlessness. Have you noticed in virtually every walk of life, there now seems to be a breakdown of morals and a decline in respect for the law in our country? A generation which has abandoned the Bible. Listen carefully to me tonight have abandoned the Bible, we're now paying for our folly in a rising tide of crime and lawlessness and contempt for the law. Everywhere we look, there's abandonment to lust and depravity. And the righteous are despised because they represent law, God, righteousness, right living. And there is contempt for the righteous that is growing in this country. The bottom line is, if it's this bad with governmental authority, what would it be without it but utter chaos? Now next, we're going to come to taxes. Oh, my. Everybody say, praise God. This is also why, he says, verse 6 and 7, this is also why you pay taxes for the authorities or God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The authorities in government and law enforcement need to be paid. And this is one of the reasons for taxes. Paul does not enter into the rights, wrongs, and abuses of the taxation system. Okay? He simply tells Christians that a nation's leaders have a right to monetary support. So he's given us the overarching principle. I personally believe taxes are out of control. 
And we've got to vote some people out and vote some people in. And, and thank God we're in a democracy still that we can do that. So if you have a problem with the way taxes are, if you don't vote, don't complain. You've got to get out there and you've got to vote. And boy, as November 2nd comes, you're going to hear me talking about voting. Well, Pastor, this is church. You ought not talk about it. Don't give me that fooey. I don't want some government coming to us and saying someday you can no longer be a 501c3 tax-exempt institution. We're taking it away from you. No, I'm going to put people in who honor the church and honor God and honor the Word. So, if you don't vote, don't complain. If you come up to me complaining about the government, I'm going to say, did you vote? If you say, well, you know, uh, don't talk to me. We're going to have uh, voter registration at the connection point. Uh, we already do. All right. So far, Paul has addressed the God-invested authority of the state, submission to rulers, the payment of taxes, and respect for the public office as ordained by God. Next, he describes the Christian's obligation to all people, the obligation to love. Now we're going to get to something that sounds at least a little more spiritual. Verses 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding. Uh-oh. Debt-free. Except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. What do you owe, Christian, to someone else? The Bible says you owe it to them to love them. Why? Because God loved you. You're a receiver, a recipient of the love of God. And so you're a debtor to God. And we owe it to others to show them the love of God. And when you love somebody, you have fulfilled the whole law. Now, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's he saying? He's saying if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't do the things he named before that. You won't steal from them. You won't murder them. You're not going to covet what they've got, okay? If you love your neighbor as yourself, then you're going to fulfill the law towards other people. What does love do? Verse 10 says, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. It doesn't harm the neighbor. You always got to think of the golden rule. Well, you know, uh, yeah, some of my trash blew over into their yard. They'll get it. No, you say, what would I think if I saw their trash blow into my yard? I don't want to pick up their trash. So you go pick up your trash, do to others what you would hope others would do for you. If you live that way, you will fulfill the law. Do you want somebody pulling in front of you on the highway? No. Then don't pull in front of somebody on the highway. Would you want somebody stealing from you? No. Then don't steal from somebody. Would you want somebody gossiping about you? Oh, no, 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 never. Then don't gossip about somebody else. See how it works? If you walk in love, you will fulfill the law. All the commandments are summed up in this one sentence. Love your neighbor as yourself. The need to love is supremely important in view of the hate-filled and godless generation in which we live. There's no love out there. It is selfish, 
all for me, none for you, climb the ladder, step on your head to get to the top. There's not much love out there. There's supposed to be love in the church. If you can't find it in the church, you're not going to find it anywhere. Okay? Since love does no wrong to a neighbor, it's the fulfilling of the law. Finally, Paul peers into the end of the age. Verses 11 to 14, he says, do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Hello, church. Who's he walk, or talking to here? He's talking to a church, the Roman church. He says, it's time for you to wake up from your slumber. He's talking about spiritual slumber. It's time for you to wake up and realize what time it is. Remember that old Chicago song? Does anybody really know what time it is? Remember that? I, I, I think that's a great question. Does anybody really know? what time it is in our culture, in our world, in the prophetic view. Do we really know what time it is? Time is short. He says the hour has come for you to wake up because our salvation is closer now than when we first believed. He said the night is nearly over. Hallelujah. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. That's talking about the return of Christ and the setting in of his kingdom. The day is almost here. So let us, in light of that, put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's talking to believers. Put away the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Wake up. Do you know what time it is? Let us behave, how everybody? Decently as in the daytime. Now, we're about to read a list. What was he doing writing this list to Christians? Can y'all help me? Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Wait a minute. He's got to be talking to the lost culture there. No. Orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, and jealousy? Yeah, church folk. Uh-oh. Well, I don't know anybody that does that. Are you alive in the world? Do you get out there? and Don't you know that there's a lot of Christians go out during the weekend and they get plastered and come to church on Sunday to get right with God? Sure is quiet in here. Not in sexual immorality. You don't know any Christians that shack up before they get married? See if everything's going to work out. That's sexual immorality. Dissension. Well, there's no dissension ever happens in churches. I'm glad of that. And there's sure no jealousy. I don't know any Christians that are jealous. Do you notice he puts jealousy in the same list as orgies and drunkenness? I'm just reading the Bible to y'all. You're looking at me like I'm doing this to you. I'm just letting the Bible speak for itself. Look, look what he's telling Christians. Don't you go get in those orgies now. Or drunkenness. Don't go get drunk. Not in sexual immorality. Don't, not debauchery. Not in dissension and jealousy. Quit it, he says to Christians, because your salvation is at hand. Rather... 
Read it with me, everybody, good and loud. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Christians, the world lives as though human history is destined to go on forever, but it's not. Peter predicted this attitude in the society existing before the return of Christ. Here's what Peter said. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. First off, Peter says, you need to know that in the last days, mockers are going to have a heyday. They'll mock, saying, so what's happened to the promise of His coming? You, you the church, you've been preaching that for 21 centuries. Where is He? You know that's a fairy tale. That's what they're going to be saying. Have you heard any lately? I have. So where's the promise of his coming? Our ancestors, they go on and say, are dead and buried. And everything's going on just as it has from the day of, first day of creation. Nothing has changed, translated, and nothing will. This return of Christ stuff is a fable. That's what they'll say. It's not true. The Christian knows that God is in control of people, and he's in control of nations, and he's directing history to a predetermined end. The day is coming when the trump will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. And they who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with those words. Since the end is near, we're to rouse ourselves from sleep. Every day brings us closer to that final day when all we have anticipated in Christ is finally going to become a reality because the night's nearly over and the day's about to dawn it's critical that believers rid themselves of the works of darkness it's time to clothe ourselves with the weapons of light our conduct is to be decent and honorable next time the weaker brother can we stand up together How many of you love the Word? Even though it stings. It stings, but do you love the Word? Amen. Because uh, the Word will cleanse you. The Word will get you right. Father, thank you for the Word. Thank you for this incredible chapter. We thank you, Lord, for the authorities that restrain chaos. And Lord, we also see so many of the signs you predicted coming to pass all around us. And Lord, we do ask you to help us to put aside the works of darkness and clothe ourselves with light. Walking in honor, walking in honesty, walking in truth, walking in a way that is a good reflection on you. Help us, Lord, to reach this culture that is drowning in darkness. Thank you for all you're doing through the church. Forgive us for any jealousy, dissension, anything we've done that's grieved you, Lord, and help us to be a powerful local church that has an incredible impact on our world for Jesus before you come again. Lord, we thank you for your grace in helping us to walk according to what we've just read. Thank you, Lord. Now you take a minute, would you, as we just bow. I want you to say, Lord, help me to be a Christian who walks in the light.
to put away any work of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Help me to do it, Lord. In the name of Jesus. In my